Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. All righty, good morning. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Today we have before us a very special and powerful passage that I believe warrants our full attention. It's absolutely vital for us to understand regardless of where we are in our relationship with the Lord. Now, of course, with any passage of this magnitude that has such illustrative power, there always comes controversy. I think the enemy knows how to uh, try and dilute the power of God's word, but we won't let that stop us. I don't want to waste a bunch of time on this, but in the vein of textual criticism, we need to understand that these verses that we're going to cover this morning are not found in the earliest of ancient biblical manuscripts. In fact, many of your Bibles may contain headings that say that. The earliest manuscripts do not include uh, 753 through 811. They're found in the early manuscripts, just not the earliest. Some of your translations like the ESV, which I'm reading this morning, will have these verses in brackets with some sort of a footnote on it. Other translations put it as a footnote. Some actually leave it all out altogether, and some even put it in the book of Luke. The reality is the majority of Bible scholars don't question the validity of the account. They may question where it belongs, etc., but they don't question that it belongs in the canon of Scripture. Further, the teaching that we find in these verses supports the rest of Scripture as it relates to how Jesus deals with the law and the lawbreaker. The principle that we find here um, as it relates to transgressions and the transgressor is consistent with the rest of Scripture. So then what we find is a beautiful picture of how Jesus will deal with each of us as sinners and our perspective sin. I hope that wasn't a newsflash for anyone, they're, that they're a sinner. Everyone good with that? Okay, all right. So let's dive right into our passage this morning. Stand with me if you would, please. We're going to read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. We read, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been, who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to, uh, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman sta standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask, Father that you would use it mightily in our lives. Father, let it not just be an illustration of what you've done in this woman's life, but may it carry out into an illustration of what you're doing in our lives, or perhaps what you will do even this morning in our life, Father. Help us to understand that you are a God of grace, that this is a grace place, and that your desire for us is for us to receive the grace that came down on our, on our behalf to make us right with you, Father. Please work in our lives this morning. Meet each person right where they are. 
We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The title of my message is When Law and Grace Collide. What happens when law and grace collide, folks? Grace ends up on top, right? Why? Because grace is greater. That's why. Grace always wins because grace isn't based on merit, but it's based on character. What do I mean? Well, the very definition of grace, according to Merriam-Webster, is unmerited divine assistance given humans for their regeneration or sanctification. It goes on to say, a virtue coming from God. Side note, I wonder how long it will be before our society becomes offended with definitions like this and removes them from the dictionaries. God help us. Pray for our nations, folks. Back on track, grace is unmerited favor, or very simply put, getting what you do not deserve. That's grace. Getting what you don't deserve. So then law, which is merited favor, it's based on you, it's how you live, it, you win or lose based on yourself and how you act, how you live out your life. That is law. That's how it works. You win or lose based on your own performance. When, when law and grace collide, grace always ends up on top. Let me illustrate this for you. It just so happens that I have with me this morning, I have a little, I have a glass of the law, and I have a little glass of grace. Now, I need a couple volunteers this morning. Any, any, any volunteers? Any, any volunteers? Oh, I see a lot of kids, man. Luke, you want to come on up? Uh, Trinity, come on up. All right. Luke, you're going to be the law. Trinity, you're going to be grace. And what I need you guys to do is, Luke, can you, can you take a little taste of that for me and taste the law, see what it tastes like? Just a little sip. You don't want a lot. <laughs> what does that taste like? What is it like? Is it kind of bitter? Is it sour? Is it, is it um, stiff? Is it, is it something you'd want to drink? No, not something you'd want to drink. Now, would you take a little sip of that, Grace? Just a little bit. Don't take too much. What does that taste like? Weird. weird. Grace is weird. Grace is weird, but it's true. Is it kind of fatty? Kind of like full, warm? Yeah. You don't, you don't want to drink that straight either, do you? No, but the illustration is true. Let's see what happens. So, so here's the deal. I have a glass of you as well, okay? So, so here's the way that we start out in life. Let's just pour a little bit of law into this glass for me, Luke, would you? Let's pour a little bit in there for me, maybe about, maybe about to there. Okay, that's a little bit more, about half that glass. Yep, there you go, that's good. All right, now, that's us. This is us, when, when we're born into the world, this is us. We're born under the law. The law helps us to see where we fail. The law helps us to see where we are, aren't, where we're not living right. It, help, it points out our failures, okay? So the law, really, what it does is it presents to us a guilty verdict. It renders us guilty. That's the point of the law. 
The law has no other reason to exist other than to help us see that we were guilty. Now, what happens when grace shows up? What happens when grace shows up? Because this is us. You can't change that. That is you. But would you pour a little bit of grace in there? Trinity, let's pour about half of that in there. What happens when you pour that in there? What's going on there? What, can you guys see what's happening? That's good. What's happening there? Where's the law? On the bottom, where's the grace? It's on the top because grace always ends up on top. Thank you, guys. Will you give these guys a warm, warm, warm a round of applause for their help? So this is the reality for us, man. This is what grace looks like when it comes to the law. Grace rises above the law. Why? Because grace, which is oil, it, it, it has a way of sliding around and, uh, you know, the molecules of the oil can, can overcome the molecules of the law, which is vinegar, by the way, oil and vinegar. you have any bread? <laughs> the, the reality is the law is too heavy. It's too closed off. It's too rigid. The oil, however, is, is able to slide around the vinegar particles and rise to the top. It's a beautiful illustration of what happens when law and grace collide. This is what happens. Grace always ends up on top. Who's grace? Jesus Christ. He's the grace. He's our grace. That's why when you take Jesus, who fulfilled the law perfectly, by the way, the law never went away for us. What happened was it was just fulfilled for us. So it's still there, but grace covers it. You get the illustration? You see how it works? Jesus Christ, when he comes into your life, covers the law for you, but he allows you to rise up on top. Grace always wins that battle. Now, that's what we find in our account this morning. We find grace winning the battle against the law. So I've divided this into three different sections, the congregating of the people, the confrontation of the law, and the collision of grace. Let, let's start by looking how the people congregated. It says in verse 1, they went each to, the, to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Each in the morning, uh, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. If you were with us last week, then you'll recall that Jesus was finished speaking publicly at the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the last time that he would speak publicly at a feast. The next, next feast that he would present himself at would be the Passover feast. And guess what? He would become the Passover lamb. That's the next time that he would be presented in a feast of sorts. And so um, remember Jesus' message to the people. The very last time he would speak to the people in a corporate manner at a feast like this, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus was crying out to these people about their soul and the thirst of their soul and the fact that they are parched because that's what the law does. It helps a person to see that they can't measure up, man. These people were living under the law, and Jesus understood that they needed some spiritual drink. They needed something that could satisfy their spiritual thirst, and so he spoke to them about a living water, about a water that would not only quench the soul's thirst, but then it would become this, this source, uh, this, this torrent or this river's plural of, of living water that would that would just gush out of your life into those people around you. 
That is the reality when you come to Christ. When you drink the drink. That's what he's talking about. To drink is to believe. That's what, it, what Jesus was saying. You have to believe in me. And if you believe in me and what I'm going to do for you, it, it, was, it, was, uh, um, it was future tense at the time because he hadn't done it yet. But for us, it's past tense. We look back upon what Jesus has done for us. But he was saying, you have to come to me. I'm the only way. He was making it very, very narrow and very specific. He was telling the people, you have to come to me. And when you come to me, I'll give you a drink. That means you have to believe in me, okay? That's what he's talking about. When you drink that, the Bible tells us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That he comes inside of us, and he doesn't just sit there and do nothing. Like, he, has, he wants to flow through us. Jesus said, flowing from you. There'll be a flow of the Spirit, and, and, and it's meant to be replenished then because it's flowing, it's continual, it, it's coming in and going back out, coming in and going back out. You know, we have to have an outlet for it. We have to have an inlet, and we have to have an outlet, don't we? It's called inlet is your personal time, your devotional time, your, the time you spend like Jesus did early in the morning or late at night with his Father, the inlet, and then the outlet is when you go into the world and you let Jesus out of you. He says that's what it's supposed to look like. There's supposed to be, and it will flow out of you. I'm seeing this happen in one of my cousin's lives right now, and it is so exciting for me to watch him, to see what God is doing in his life. This kid has been so hard-hearted against the Lord, and yet circumstances as they would have it would cause him to see his need for Jesus Christ. He's going through, you know, he's kind of going through this uh, divorce situation where they're destined for divorce, they're, they're separated, and yet my cousin Josh and I were, have been ministering to him and we've been telling him, listen, you need to get your eyes on Jesus. That vertical relationship has to be the first relationship that you focus on. If you want any other relationship to, to, to work, you have to get that relationship to work. And, and so here's the, here's the interesting thing is he's, he grew up to have witness. So he's, he's been dealing with this, this, you know, all this stuff that he grew up in and he just hates religion. Because he, he knows what he's tasted is not right. He knows there's something missing. He's still thirsting, you see. He hasn't had the drink that Jesus is talking about. And so uh, as we've been pointing him to Jesus, he, he, he started to pray to God. And I said, just start with prayer, man. Just start with a simple prayer. Jesus said, if you come to me, I'll reveal myself to you. Just, just come. Just go to God simply in prayer and begin that communication with him. And as he's done that, through that process on his own, he, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He said, I made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Just through a simple prayer, just simply by starting to walk down the road of saying, God, I need you. And I don't know what it looks like, and I, I want to discount everything I've ever been told, and I just want to start fresh today. Just take my mind and erase everything that I know, and let's start like I'm a little baby, and I'm just coming to you very simply. And I don't even know. He says, I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to say, but I'm just praying to the Lord, he says, you know, because... The Jehovah Witnesses make a very, very big deal about coming to God in his proper name, Jehovah, which isn't his proper name if you really want to get down to it. But anyways, the reality is, is they make a big deal of that. And, and we say, well, how does Jesus tell us to, to, to pray? He says, Father. Father. He, he tells us God's an intimate God that he wants, that he's our heavenly Father, that he is into us like that, and he wants us to approach him in an intimate manner. And so as he, he's just been simply just praying, I'm praying to the Lord. In Jesus' name. That's how I, I don't know. That's just what you guys, I hear you guys do. So that's what I'm doing. And he accepted the Lord. Now listen, this is, what, this is, this is where it illustrates what Jesus was talking about. You, you come to drink from him. Listen, it, it, there's that satisfaction in your own soul. But it doesn't stop there. 
Then it starts to flow out of you into the people in your life. Listen, his daughter, and he had been estranged. She had come out and said not too long ago, she was, um, you know, not to get too personal, but there's just some issues going on in her life. And, uh, um, and what ended up happening was, um, she said, I don't want to be around you anymore, and I just don't want a relationship with you at all. And she left. I think she's like 17, 16 years old. He accepts Christ. He prays like last week, uh, uh, one night this, this last week, he prays, God, will you help me to begin to build my relationship back up with my, my daughter? Ten minutes later, ten minutes later, she calls him on the phone and says, Dad, I want to come home. Ten minutes later. Now, anybody realize that that isn't how God worked in your life when you were a new believer, man? He's just like, He's there and he's shown you that he's real to you. He, he wants you to understand. It's the little bit of faith that he acts upon. And then as you walk with him more, it requires he builds your faith, doesn't he? He tests you the waters, takes you to another level. But in a very simple manner, she prays and his daughter calls him 10 minutes later and says, I want to come home. I want to live with you. I want to I be with you. I don't want to be away from you anymore. That's what Jesus can do in your life. Not only that. Not only is that happening in his life, but then his wife calls up and she says, you know what, I have no idea why I did what I did and I'm trying to figure all that out and, you know, I really don't understand it all, but the reality is, is that I, I want to come home and I, I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm going to, we're going to, you know, that this is all going to work out or whatever, but I'm just saying I think I need to be there and I think that I need to help, have some help understanding what went wrong. And I tell him, listen, bro, I know exactly what's wrong. She needs Jesus. Your daughter needs Jesus. You have Jesus now. You guys need to let Jesus be the Lord of your lives and let him be the Lord of your family. And you let him build that family. Now listen, irrelevant, we've not promised him anything other than God will work in your life and he will do everything that he said he would. And he promises to do all these things in your life if you keep your eyes on him. He will give you perfect peace. It doesn't mean that every circumstance is going to work out for you. But, but you just trust Jesus Christ in the midst of your hardships and watch and see what he does. It's the truth, man. That's the way it works. Jesus said, when you come and you drink of me, out of you will flow rivers of living water and it will affect other people in your life. It will. That's what he was saying. It's a pure work of grace. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve the drink. Jesus presents it to us knowing we don't deserve the drink. But he says, I want you to drink anyway because it's all about grace with God. It's all about grace. You can't, the law helps you to see where you fail. But Jesus Christ helps to shore up the line and he covers you. He fulfills the law for you. So Jesus, it tells us here, after he said that to them, he went alone by himself and he spent some time with his dad up on the Mount of Olives. Man, that, that must have been home away from home for Jesus where he just would commune with his father on his knees. Probably not even, you know, pray sleeping. You do that? You pray sleep where you start praying and, and you fall asleep and then you wake up and you start praying again and you fall asleep. That's probably what Jesus did on the Mount of Olives. He was in communion with his father constantly, just continual prayer for the Father. Jesus did sleep, you know. You're looking at me like he never slept. He's a man and God at the same time. But, but he, 
he communed with his father. Now listen, this was, a very, this was a practice of Jesus too. Very early in the morning, he would go and he would begin either to, to teach or to pray or he would do something spiritual. And, and, and that's a, I think that's a, a good discipline for us because when does your day start? When does the battle begin? The moment you open your eyes in the morning. So early in the morning, it's a great time to put on the armor of God. I think that's what Jesus did. But he found himself in the temple here. And he would go and he would sit and, uh, amongst the people and, and he would just begin to teach. He would just find himself on the temple mount there, find a, some, some step to sit on and he would sit there and, and people would begin to come. And they would begin, hey, wasn't that that guy that, that we think is the Messiah? We're not sure. There's a lot of controversy. Remember when he left, there was a lot of controversy about who he was. So he, he, he gets to that place where he, he finds himself in the temple and people are still interested in hearing from him and so he begins to teach them. Now, what you need to understand is that when the people begin to congregate, this is when, um, the, that, this is when the religious leaders want to take advantage of this situation because they need to not only arrest Jesus, but they need to turn the people away from Jesus. They have a, a couple stage battle here. Because they're in the realm of their, okay, they're under Roman rule, okay? So they have to be concerned about the way they do things. They can't just run in and grab Jesus and interrupt this whole thing and get people upset because then Rome will come down on them. So they have to do this very carefully and cautiously. It has to be strategic. It's got to be planned out. The religious leaders still want to arrest Jesus. Remember, last, last, last time, the night before, they were going to arrest him, but no one did because he just was speaking so powerfully. The, the guards couldn't even do it, and they came and had that conversation with the Pharisees. They're like, man, I've never heard anybody speak like that. But Jesus is, is sitting there. That The religious leaders want him arrested. They want to put him to death, and there's no better way to do that now, they figure. How can we turn the people against Jesus? Well, let's bring up the law. That will turn them against Jesus. Everybody, who, anybody speaking against the law, certainly that's blasphemy, man. We can certainly turn these people away from So they have a mousetrap set. This is set up. They're, they're not just, they didn't, didn't happen upon some lady that was in an adulterous act and grab her and then throw her before Jesus. This was set up. If Jesus comes, this is what we're doing that says a whole bunch of stuff that we'll get into in a second, but that says a lot about this woman and her character and what she'd been going through and what her lifestyle was like. And it also says a lot about what these Pharisees were like and what they were trying to do. They were trying to set this up. This is a mousetrap. And here's the thing is Jesus isn't afraid of mousetraps because the cheese on the trap for him is the people. And he would let the trap snap on him because he loves the people. And he would walk into that. He's not worried. He knows his father has his life in his hands. And he's being obedient to his father. So here they are in the setting, the temple mount, the conversation. Jesus is having, Jesus is teaching these people. Now we find the confrontation of the law, verse 3. The, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in, in an act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to sown such a woman. So what do you say? And we know that they were saying this to test him so that they could bring a charge against him. The enemy loves to interrupt the teaching of the Word of God. He loves to interrupt when truth is being presented, whether it's on a personal level, 
and you're trying to talk to somebody and you know the Holy Spirit's working on them and they get a phone call. That's spiritual warfare, man. Don't think of it in anything else. That is spiritual warfare. You're having a conversation with, with a mom and you're really trying, and the kids are going crazy. That is spiritual warfare. These kind of things have to be fought on our knees, prepared for beforehand when we walk into the battle. Lord, help the, that fight to be set aside so that these people can see clearly. Jesus was teaching these people, and all of a sudden the interruption um, by these religious leaders and, and the big commotion that would come with it, you know, no doubt guards and all. They got this lady and they're, get over here, you know, and there's the, the Pharisees are, you know, prodding along with them. And, and there's this big processional coming into this place where Jesus is. And this lady is, you know, scaly dressed, her hair is disheveled. She's, she's, she's just been caught red-handed in the midst of an adulterous act. And they throw her before the Lord. They say, the law says this, what do you say? They're right. The law does say that. I mean, Moses does say that. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with his wife, with with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's not incorrect. That is true. But didn't Jesus take the law to another level in the Sermon on the Mount? Didn't he even take this law to another level? Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, Jesus said, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, which is the seventh commandment, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The confrontation here of the law was correct. The heart, however, was not. And the, the condemners were not either. The heart behind the condemners was not for justice and for righteousness and because God is a holy God and because he, you know, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with them catching Jesus. They wanted to condemn Jesus, not her. She's just a pawn in the game. They asked Jesus, how do you think we should handle this? Stones in hand? Evidence before them? Now they're waiting on Jesus. They have presented the law to them. The law's purpose is to condemn. That's that's what it's meant for. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is the purpose of the law, to condemn, to reveal sin. And that's what they're trying to do. But Jesus is saying it's backfiring on you because it's revealing your sin. You're talking about her adulterous act. I'm talking about yours. Look at yourself first. You know, they come to him in righteousness, they say. We're upholding the law and Jesus points the law right back at them. He says, no, you're not. You're not doing this with a righteous heart. 
And when it comes to the law, you know, you're not going to be commended for the good things you're doing. You realize that, right? I mean, when's the last time you were driving down the road and a policeman pulled you over and said, hey, I just want to give you a, an award for driving according to the speed limit. I'm so happy for you. We're so thankful for law-abiding citizens that we want to give you a award. It doesn't work that way. The law is meant to point your failure out. The law is meant to condemn you. The law is meant to pull you over so that there can be um, consequences handed out to you. You know, I, I've seen the red and blue lights. You know, they, I have been pulled over, and, and I have experienced that. And guess what? There's consequences for that violation of the law. It doesn't matter um, that I've obeyed the law a hundred times before. If I've disobeyed it once, I've disobeyed it, and I am guilty of that. And that's what Jesus is trying to help them see. Then I have to pay my consequences. These religious leaders know that the law condemns. And they're hoping to kill two birds with one stone here. They want to, they want to kill Jesus and this lady. They want them both dead. They thought that because if he were to, um, they thought they could bring him before the people. And if, if we, we're going to get him, we're going to put him in a pickle here. We're going to make him either say the law, is, you know, to speak against the law and say, well, we're not going to do that even though the law says that. Or we're going to have him um, be so uncompassionate towards people that they're not going to want to be with him and, and, and anyways. And so we'll be, either way, he's in a catch-22. There's nothing he can do in this situation. What do you think, Jesus? Now, Jesus could have easily pointed out that, you know, well, what does the law say? It says that the adulterer and the adulteress. There takes two people to be in an adulterous act. Where's the guy? Where's the guy? I'm not even going to answer the question until I see the guy. I need, to, I need to have all of this, you know, again, just like Nicodemus said, do we, do we condemn a person without giving them a trial? Where's the guy? They didn't even do it right. They didn't even, they didn't even present this correctly. That shows the heart. That shows the intent of their heart. It's not about God here. Jesus could have easily pointed that out and navigated around this whole situation and been fine. But that's not what he does. Look what he does. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and, and wrote, with his finger on the ground. Now, in this moment, all eyes are on Jesus. You would not expect him to start playing in the dirt. You would not expect him to start drawing pictures. It would be the equivalent of your wife coming in and she has an important decision to make. This happens to me all the time, and I start finger painting. You know, I'm like, oh, do 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 do. No, no, not really. But it would be the equivalent of that. This is a serious situation. Jesus stoops down. He starts writing in the in the ground, and and. This woman, no doubt, is fearful. The crowd is gasping, wondering what Jesus is going to say. The Pharisees and the scribes believe that they've trapped Jesus. And um, what does he do? He's, he's doodling in the ground. Everybody must be taken back, and they must be wondering, what is he writing? Well, guess what? That wonder continues today because we don't know. We have no idea what he was writing, but we can. We, we, the Word of God, interesting enough, does say something that maybe would shed a little light to us. There was, an old, there was a prophecy given to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Check this out. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living water. Now, that's kind of an interesting verse considering what just happened, that Jesus was offering the living water, the fact that he is the Lord, and the fact that he's writing in the ground, probably their names. Probably their names. We don't know that for sure, but, but 
that would give us some indication of that. It, it, it's kind of compelling, I think. But, 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 but maybe Jesus was stooping down and he just began to doodle their names. And maybe even the sins that would, 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 they would be held accountable for themselves just begins to doodle in the grass. Again, not, that's conjecture on my part, not dogmatic on that. But, but, but that verse tells us that their name shall be written on the ground. Who forsook Jesus? The woman certainly did. The, these Pharisees and these scribes certainly have. There's no question that's happening. And, and, and that verse tells us what shall happen to those people then. They'll be put to shame. They'll be put to shame. The proud Pharisees and scribes come prancing into the, to the, to the temple and they think, we've got Jesus, but they, are, they get put to shame, don't they? They turn around and they leave one by one. All have forsaken the Lord, including us, including every person that would ever live on the planet. Every single person has forsaken the Lord. So Jesus begins to write down something on the ground. And this, what we find next is when law and collides with grace, check out verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up. Like they continued to pounce on him, the same thing, tell us, Jesus, tell us, Jesus. They didn't let it rest at all. And he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bent down again and he began to write on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus left alone with Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up after he had doodled in the ground for a moment, and he said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The law had been violated. There's no question about that. Jesus made that plain. That's not the question. Stoning her was the correct course of action. However, the stone throwers shouldn't be hypocrites. They shouldn't be violators of the same law, should they? Jesus is saying, you're hypocritical in your judgment. And that's, isn't that what Matthew 7, 1 says? Like, isn't that, don't, don't judge lest you be judged? Is, is, but isn't that in the context of being hypocritical? Yes, it is. You can shake your head yes like this. Yes, it is. It's in that context. Jesus is saying you're judging incorrectly because you yourselves are violators of the law. How could you even see clearly what's going on? You're failures yourselves. Be sort of like walking into, you know, into a judge after he's fined you for speeding and then say, hey, uh, he's who, he, who, he who speeds, you know, go ahead and, and deal out the fines. You know what I mean? Don't do that. You'll go to jail. I don't want you to go to jail if you say something like that to the judge, but um, Jesus basically turned it back on them. He, he's not going to put up with hypocrisy. And it's all in light of the law. And do you know that's what the law does really well too? People that try and approach God through the law, they become very, very hypocritical. And they forget who they are. And you know what? We see that in the world today all the time. We see that even in our own lives, don't we? We start to condemn somebody because they're, they're caught up in sin and we're just, we're so righteous now. We've, we're so far above that that we, don't, we would never do anything like that and we start to talk down to them as if it's not all grace in our life. As it, you know, it's easy for us to start to adopt that law back into our life. It's all grace. 
It's all grace that we can stand before anyone, man. Jesus says, don't hypocritically judge people. That doesn't mean you don't point out sin. That's not what, what he's saying. These people are ready to kill this girl for the very same things they're doing. Jesus is simply saying, I'm not saying that that is not the weight of the law, but grace has come into the picture. But grace has come into the picture. Listen, when they heard that, it was, must have been like, you know, nails piercing the heart. He who was without sin cast the first stone. Oh, that hurts. And it's amazing that there's even enough humility in these people that they would begin to drop their stones and walk away. That's the grace of God. That's amazing in and of itself. But Jesus spoke right into their life, just like he does to you and I. And they realized in that moment, man, I can't do this. We can't trap him. They, Jesus pointed them back to their own sin, and they began to drop their stones one by one. And it says from the oldest to the youngest, it's probably because the older guys got what he was saying first. You know, there's a little bit more wisdom behind those older guys, and they're like, okay, we see what he's saying here. This is, this is not looking good for us. Now, we're, the people are going to come against us if we move forward on this. We better just move away. And it's the younger guys that are still waiting to do it, and then eventually, where the other guys go? And they, they drop their stones too. No one gets away from the grip of the law, you know that? No one gets away from the grip of the law. The law is a sure reality. It's like a heat-seeking missile that will eventually hit its target unless grace shields you from the detonation. And that's what happens here. Grace covers this woman. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, don't ever call a woman woman in this day and age. Where are they? This is a respectful term for in, their age, in their day. Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Can you imagine what this moment must have been like for this lady? Can you imagine what it must have been like? Remember when, when your sins were forgiven? Remember the joy that flooded your heart? Remember the tears that flowed out of your, out of your eyes because you were like, whoa, I don't deserve this. That's right, you don't. It's grace. In this moment, this lady was about to die. And we were destined that same path, by the way. We were about to die as well. But grace showed up on her behalf and grace showed up on your behalf. When grace shows up, condemnation flees because, back to my earlier illustration, grace always ends up on top. It always ends up on top. Um. Jesus said something profound to her, so life-changing that it almost was unbelievable. He said, you know what? Where are those that condemn you? Oh, they're nowhere to be found? Well, neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to condemn you. I love you. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to feel the full brunt, the weight of your sin. I don't want that for you. I love you. I want you to experience grace. I want you to experience the love that the Father has for you in sending me. Jesus is that grace. The Bible tells us um, that's what God sent his Son into the world for. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he, is not believed in the, he who has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Faith in Jesus Christ, belief in him and him alone is the only equalizer to the law. It's the only thing that will help you overcome the weight of the law. This verse indicates clearly that our salvation comes, um, it comes from believing in Jesus Christ, who is the grace of God that's come down. What Jesus gave this, this lady in this moment was no condemnation. He gave her full pardon, forgiveness, cleansing, all in this moment, which is offered to you and I today the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ to believe in his death and his resurrection. That's how we obtain forgiveness. It's by faith. You know, the Bible tells us that we're all guilty of the law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the Lord. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the Lord. We all have broken his law. And because we're violators of law, we deserve the weight of the law, which is condemnation. But aren't you glad for Romans chapter 8, 1, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? When you come into relationship with him, all that condemnation falls to the side. Why do we focus on it? Why do we continue to look at it and we continue to gravitate towards it? And, and, and there's such a pull to want to become a law keeper and to start adding all these laws back into our lives and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that, therefore I don't have the favor with God. Did it come that way? came by grace, didn't it? Isn't that the last time I checked? Salvation comes by grace. Sanctification then comes by the law. No. Sanctification then comes by what? By grace. Listen, the law has been satisfied. It, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that it was a teacher, a tutor. It was an instructor that was meant to point us to Jesus Christ to help us to see that we cannot live out the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly for us. And it wasn't that the law didn't have to be satisfied. It did, but Jesus just happened to be the one to do that. And then... He satisfied it for you personally. Substitutionary atonement. He took your place. He said, I'll trade my righteousness for that sinner's sin. And he paid for our sin. Jesus is illustrating to us right here in this account the very gospel. That's what he's indicating to us. That's what he's illustrating to us. That he stooped down. Jesus stooped down twice in this passage. There's an illustration there. Jesus stooped down from heaven to earth, didn't he? He stooped down from heaven to earth as a result of what? The law. When the law showed up, Jesus stooped down. When the law was present in our lives, we were born into the law. He came down and he became low and he laid his life down to satisfy the requirements of the law for you. He stooped down, but listen, then he rose back up. He stood up there. It's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus as he stood up and he... He profoundly tells this lady who's been trapped in her sin, you are forgiven. It's a picture of the gospel. He laid down his life that he might take it up again, that you and I might receive that same life that he wants to give, give us, and that is eternal life through him, forever with him. We can receive the forgiveness the same way, by grace, 
through faith in Him. What's the result of grace? What did Jesus tell this woman? The result of grace in our lives is not more sin. He says, now go and sin no more. Now go and sin no more. Like don't continue on in the same path that you're in. This is a picture of repentance. To turn away from your life and to turn to God and not go the same direction that you were going. To go 180 degrees the other way. To make a full turn and go the opposite way. That's what Jesus told her. Now go and sin no more. You've been in sin. Now do a 180 degree turn and now go. don't sin anymore. The grace that we've been given in our lives is meant for us to then, um, then to change our life, to live out the power that we've been given through the gospel, through the blood of the Lamb, to overcome our sin because now we are dead to sin. But we are alive in Christ. He's paid for our sin. All that stuff that you've done in the past, present, future, it's all paid for. But he's saying, man, don't live in it. That was the dichotomy Paul was having, the conversation with the Romans, uh, the, the believers in Rome. And he was telling them, man, you're dead to sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You've been crucified. You died with Christ, Romans chapter 6. You were raised again from the dead. You identify with him now, and now your life has changed. The result of grace in our lives is a changed life. Listen to this, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Who is that speaking of? Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Listen. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us and redeemed us for all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The result of grace is a changed life. That's what, that's what he was writing right here. That's what he said right there. It's a changed life. It's, we're now in training through Christ in righteousness. Romans chapter 6 says we were slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. There's been a change in our life. That's the result of grace. Not that we would sin anymore. But what happens when we do sin as a believer? What happened when this girl, when she turned and she went out the door, would she ever sin again? The answer is yes. But Jesus said that ought not be your lifestyle. There's been a change in your life. You've encountered me. You've been in my presence. Grace has been poured out on you. Now your life has changed. And if you sin, listen, grace will continue to cover you. That's what Paul told us in Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass to help us understand our sin. But where sin increased, listen, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't have a license to sin when we come to Christ. Jesus told this woman who was forgiven, that was no longer condemned, your life has been changed. So go and live out that change. Don't let grace cover you. Let it flow out of you. Be gracious to other people. Don't be this guy. Be this guy. Let this happen in, in other people's lives through you. 
let God's grace come down in their life through you and pour it out on them. Man, there's too many people that are still living. They've been, they've been uh, partakers of grace, but now they're, they're propagators of the law. We're propagators of grace, man. It's by grace that you've been saved. Jesus is presenting when law and grace collide, grace wins. The only response for us is then to live in that grace, to receive that grace, and to live in it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for just all that you've done in our lives, Lord. We thank you for giving us the grace that we need for forgiveness, Lord. I pray, God, that, that if there's anyone in this place this morning that's struggling with the law, that's being maybe confronted by the law in their life, it has a purpose. It was never meant to be wiped away and to taken out was meant to point us to Jesus. Lord, for any of us that are caught up in something that is not of you today, Lord, the purpose of your law is to point us to Jesus, to point us to grace, that we might be covered. Would you help us to be repentant, Lord, even in this moment, as we prepare our hearts for communion, that you would help us, Lord, just be repentant people. Father, for those that are here this morning and they are caught up in law-keeping, they are the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe they were saved by grace once, but now they have become the law-abiding the law Christian that wants everybody to abide the law. We don't relate to you by the law, Lord. We relate to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, which is grace came down. God, help us. Help those who are caught up in that, Lord, to be freed this morning to know that it's a matter of grace, unmerited favor. We don't have to work for your favor this morning, Lord. We already have it. We were given it through your Son and the cross. And so God set those free this morning. And maybe for those who this morning that are not in relationship with you, that need that grace to come down in their life, to know, to realize that it has in the person of Jesus Christ, that he came down that he laid his life down, that he stooped and then he stood for each one of us individually. Would you help those to turn their eyes to you this morning that need relationship with you and to just ask you in simply? God, I'm coming to you today recognizing that I'm a sinner and I need grace. And I know Jesus is that grace. I'm believing in him this morning believing what He's done for me on the cross, that He died for me, that He paid the penalty of my sin, and that He rose again from the dead, declaring that it is finished in my life. And I receive Him as my Lord and Savior this morning. I'm turn away from my sin, and I'm going 180 degrees the other way. And help me to walk in this freeness You've given me now. Let's make me a Christian. What a better time to do that than even right now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion. So continue in the work that only you can do in our, our hearts now, Lord, as we prepare and just may we just continue to draw near to you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.